Way Home with Laura Smith, the show that brings you wonderful guests, helpful advice, and uplifting stories. The Way Home, live inspired. Here's your host, Laura Smith. I am so happy to be here, um, and thank you for joining me on what I'm going to call um, my anniversary program of The Way Home, because it was on Veterans Day 11-11, three years ago, that we aired the very first of The Way Home show, and just not having any great big idea of where it was going to go, but I just knew I had to um, get back on the air and do stories like this. I had done it for many, many years on WABC in New York City, and um, since I moved to the Midwest, I wanted to continue having fascinating conversations with fascinating people because... there's just so many of them in the world and I want to talk to as many of them as possible and bring you the most interesting people with wonderful stories and also uh, stories that uplift that uh, kind of give you tips for living um, things that really warm your heart at the same time. So yes, it was three years ago that the way home with Laura Smith was born. I'm grateful to my wonderful producer, Bob small and co-producer, Jim Cleefield, who always does the good news stories at the end, uh, will be doing good news stories on this one at, per usual. But I'm just so grateful. And so thanks for sharing that with me. Today's show is going to be fun. I have an author who in her spare time and to relieve stress during COVID, she's a doctor, a pulmonary doctor. She was trying to relieve stress by writing a book. Can you imagine? She didn't intend for it to be for anybody or anything except for herself. Just fun, just kind of sketching out these uh, ideas and in story form. And lo and behold, two years later, she has written a book that not only um, is 250 pages long, but it is won an award in the romance category. But it's not just romance. It's also science fiction. It's called Cairn. Mates of the Alliance, and Karen is the character, the lead character, and it also is semi-autobiographical in that there's a doctor in it as well, but who falls in love with an alien, by the way. But it's one in the romance category, and we're talking to the author today. Her name is Fionn Fox Faraday, and she is now on uh, working on many volumes later, and she's going to continue the series. She says it's sort of taken over her life and she's uh, still a doctor, but she's still writing these books on the side. So great conversation with her. And along the same vein, I have two very interesting people that are talking about the latest developments in scientific and forensic research of unidentified aerial phenomenon, UAPs, which we used to call UFOs back in my day. And so these two guests, J.C. Van Velkenberg, she's a doctor, a former Los Alamos National Lab biophysicist, and Deborah Le Pravat, she's a former FBI special agent and forensic scientist. They have the latest scoop on what is going on in the world of this unidentified aerial phenomenon. And boy, it's interesting stuff. So we're going to have that today all in the realm of outer space on our show today that is part of our anniversary. So I'm grateful for that. And we're all always brought to you since day one by Balance of Nature, fruits and veggies in a capsule. That is not outer space. That is actually from planet Earth. And it is the only product of its kind on the market. It is 100% food, produce, fruits and vegetables, 32 different ones. 
in these capsules that give you 10 servings per day when you take three and three of them. They are life-changing. They are body-changing. And I think they're mind-changing because they make you feel so good knowing that you're getting the allotment that your body is supposed to have every day. It's so hard to get the amount of fruits and vegetables we are supposed to. It's practically impossible. But Balance of Nature has fixed all of that for you. To order them, you go to balanceofnature.com. Make sure you put my name into the promo code Laura. That way you get 35% off and free shipping for all time. It's once again, Laura, L-A-U-R-A. Put it in the promo code at balanceofnature.com. When we come back, Fionn Fox Faraday and her new book, Karen, Mates of the Alliance. Don't go away. This is The Way Home. Welcome back. You're listening to The Way Home with Laura Smith. Here's Laura. Well, it's not often you come across an author who is actually a medical professional and just happens to write an award-winning novel on the side. But that's the case of Fionn Fox Faraday. I love saying it. It's just, it sounds so fabulous. I don't <laughs> even need to read the book. It's so great. Um, Fionn has written a new book that sort of uh, crunches together romance and sci-fi and all sorts of excitement. The book is called Cairn. Mates of the Alliance, okay, and it's won an International Impact Book Award in the romance category, but there's a lot of sci-fi in it. But before we even get to that, I want to talk about the circumstances under which you started writing the book, Fionn, because it's really unusual. A lot of us think that we have a book in ourselves, inside of us, or, you know, we have a dream one day to, to write a book. You actually did it kind of during the pandemic, kind of during, you know, working as a, a pulmonary specialist in a hospital setting. Oh, my goodness. This is such an interesting story. Tell us how this all came about and, and, and about your life. I had a medical scare back in spring of 2020, and they took me off any call responsibilities for about six weeks. And I, and no work at all for two weeks. I got a little stir crazy. I did all of my, I went through my tuber red pile. I binge watched all of the shows that I thought I wanted to watch. And when I came, I started writing because I kind of just wanted to do, wanted to occupy myself. When I came back to work, it was in the throes of the first wave of COVID. And ugh, we all remember what it was like back then. It was truly beyond words. We were losing entire families and there was so much stress and it was so hard to leave work at work. And I wrote as a method of coping initially, and it was my uh, lifeline to, and it kind of kept me sane at the time because it was a way to release all that stress. And it's now become almost like a, a very good compulsion. And <laughs> it was also sort of a love letter because, you know, uh, physicians actually have it kind of easy in the ICU to some degree because we come by, we check on our patients half an hour, an hour, sometimes a little longer, and then we move on to our next patient until, unless they have a problem and then we come back. The nurses, the ICU nurses are a different breed altogether. They stay there for 12 hours shift-wise. Mm -hmm. And this is before we were allowing family members in. So these nurses were the only support system for these patients. And they 
you know, they, they were completely committed. They came in every day and it took a toll on them. We lost a lot of ICU nurses because of burnout, because we saw so many people that we lost. And, you know, it takes, it takes a huge amount out of someone emotionally and psychologically to do that. So it's a love letter to them because those guys are heroes and they are to some degree, a lot of times unsung and we, and underappreciated. And, you know, this was, I hoped a little bit, to make them laugh and to give them something hopeful. And uh, it did work because they, they teased me a lot about it and they got me to blush more than a few times and we got a good laugh out of it. And, you know, it's, it's a, it's a team, but those guys are amazing. They really They're, are. Oh, without a doubt, uh, nurses for me are the, uh, the epitome uh, up there with firefighters, police officers, um, social workers. Is it, Nurses are truly heroes in this country. But tell me, what was your exact position? What is your position? What do you do? What is your title at the hospital? I'm a pulmonary critical care doc. So uh, when COVID first started, uh, for a while there, we saw there were so many people on the ventilators. We were literally running out of ventilators. And it was a reality check because there are people that like a year before they would have been on the ventilator. No question asked, questions asked. And we got more familiar with COVID and realized that we could use different modalities, even though it, initially it took a lot of getting used to. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, it's never going to, unfortunately it's not going away. It's going to be, it's like the flu. It's always going to be here. And it's just kind of, you know, ebbs and flows depending on the variants that we're seeing. So you were really one of the types of doctors during the pandemic that was just literally constantly on call. I, I I don't know how they got through it, but but I guess what you did was is you found a release and that was through writing this novel. Now, did you set out initially to write a novel or were you just sort of writing fun things? Because like you said, you ran out of shows to binge watch. You ran out of things to read yourself. So you just thought you would start writing. Had you always wanted to write? I mean, how did this come about? Because for you to just start writing during the pandemic, it's only two years later. And this book is not only done and finished, and but it's, it's winning an award. <laughs> it, I find it just a unique story. Oh, well, thank you. Um, it started off as just, you know, something to keep myself occupied because I was tired of reading, of reading other things that I'd already read before because I will remember the storyline for a little too long. And initially it was just for fun. And then it became, you know, an, a, an escape valve. And the, I wanted, we were so frustrated at work because we didn't have a lot to offer people. It was just supportive care. And I was, well, you know, why don't I write something where, we do have the methods to make a difference that, you know, and what what could do that? Well, you know, it's in the future or it's science fiction. It's aliens who have the tech to do what we can't. And that's where that came from. And it's uh, anytime I get a little frustrated with something in the news, it finds its way into a book these days. So, uh-huh. it, it, yeah. So my politics do flavor it sometimes. But um, it's Let been. Hmm? Yes. No, I, I, I've. I, it's such a fascinating um, sort of integration of romance with aliens, and and you've got your you've got a doctor as the protagonist, correct? Yes. She works in ICU, kind of like you, and and she falls in love with an alien named Karen, um, who. But you grew up in a family that is very connected with the military in different wars, and and so you've incorporated the military into it 
it's sort of in, intergalactic uh, warfare yeah. into it as well. I mean, you really have all your bases covered, and yet you're winning an award in the romance category. Go figure. <laughs> how did you? How did you um, really put these all these things together? Such disparate ideas, I would say, together to create something cohesively that does win an award. Um, tell me, how, where does the the romance fit in with like this alien world and the military and such? Who do you come away falling in love with these with this couple, and do they stay in love, or is this the beginning of what's going to be? I don't know, a series of books under the, you know, Mates of Alliance uh, series? Well, you know, the it, Karen is, his uh, race, they're military, basically very incredible warriors. And they serve as the protectorate arm of the Galactic Alliance. The, uh, and basically, uh, he's been lonely. He hasn't realized that and he starts having these dreams and doesn't realize you know, where she is or who she is, but he sees little snippets of her life and he's feeling a bond for him before he even meets her. And what's really interesting is that he actually, he recognizes her as his mate immediately. She takes a little while to come around because they are seven and a half foot tall, wolf-like humanoids. So they've got claws, teeth, tails, and, you know, these huge pointy ears. And when they talk, it sounds like a, a big, a lot of growling. And they initially, when she first meets him and he smiles at her, all she sees is the teeth. And then it, she comes to recognize that that's a smile and she doesn't even notice their differences. And that's what the story is. I wanted to make it come out so that, you know, underneath all those superficial differences, they found their person. And the other thing is it's not it's it is a romance at its heart. But it's founded in, uh, rooted in friendship and family because uh, a lot of the secondary characters are the ones that help them see what, you know, what, what their relationship should be and help them realize what they uh, would be missing if they didn't give this a true shot. When you started writing this, how many pages did it turn out to be? Because it's, it's not a skinny little book. It's, it's over 200 pages, correct? Yeah, it's about 54,000 words, which turned out to be about 220-something. Now, um, the odd thing is uh, I use it as therapy and uh, for stress relief. So apparently I need a lot of free therapy because I'm still writing. And you get to hear about what happens with Karen and his Daria and their friends in the upcoming books. Yes, Daria is the protagonist, the woman yeah. um, mm-hmm. who is human, and she falls in love with... Karen, who yeah. is, which by the way is spelled K A I R N. Karen, um, is that is that Irish or something? Is that uh, I think it's Gaelic? Actually, I think it's sort of Scottish, but spelled differently. It's there's a Karen, there's a Karen Terrier, and I think a Karen is actually like a a, a strong stack of stones as like a um, a roadway, like a marker. So I wanted it to convey strength and durability. I was hoping that you know, and this is a little arrogant on my part, but I was hoping that people would sort of have the same feeling as with Shape of Water, you know, two completely different individuals who see beyond all their differences and just fall in love. And, you know, I would imagine for anyone writing a book, uh, my guest right now is Fionn Fox Faraday, and she's written Cairn, Mates of the Alliance, which is winning the International Impact book award in the romance category, although it's some sci-fi military 
and all sorts of yummy stuff thrown in there together. When you started writing, did you did you think that you were actually going to write a novel that you were going to present it as such and and try to perhaps even start a series with this? Or again, were you just kind of jotting down pretend notes? If I wrote a story, this is kind of how it would go. I mean, was it very intentional that you wanted this to be a book and a book that was bought and read by others? Actually, it turned out as just um, for myself. And then I had some friends read it and they're like, you know, this is actually, and there was more like uh, a much shorter version and they were like, this is really interesting. We need to know what happened. So I kind of just wrote it and shared it with them. And they encouraged me quite a bit. And, and a lot of my family did also. And uh, this is where it's taken me. It's been a wild, exciting roller coaster of a ride. But only two years. I know some people, it takes, you know, they have these these dreams of writing um, for years and years and years. This this happened during the duration of the, the pandemic while you were working and while you were not working. And and yet you were able to complete it. Did you have an editor? Did you send it in as a manuscript? Did you self-publish? I sent it in uh, after it was done and they helped me edit some of it. Um you know, this is, I mean, this took me someplace I never imagined because uh, when I first started writing, it was really just out of, you know, stress relief and it took off a life of, life of its own. And I used to try to initially uh, try to kind of like flesh out or put, a, put the story in a certain direction and the characters were sort of, oh, no, mm-mm, we got this. Just leave it up to us. We'll take you where you need to go. And their ideas, so to speak, were way better than mine. And they have, uh, they, I've lived in this world for about two years now, and they've become almost like an extended family. I know that sounds a little insane. No, it's but, your muse. It's basically yeah. what a muse is. And, and mm-hmm. it's, it's drawing you and, and you're just sort of following and, and going where it would, which I have a feeling with anyone who is a creative type gets lost in it. And allows it to sort of unfold as opposed to, you know, trying to control the everything about it. I mean, I think that happens with songwriters. I think it happens with mm-hmm. painters and the Michelangelo's of the world who end up, you know, you know, finding these beautiful things within a, within the stone themselves without, you know, taking responsibility for having discovered what it is. It's just sort of taking on a life of its own. So you're kind of talking about a process, which I think um, many people who end up succeeding um, in their respective arts ended up, you know, doing it. And so I find it interesting that you did complete it. You did send it in. Here you are a pulmonary doctor during the pandemic and you've written this book. It's winning an award. Now, let me ask, are you writing the second and third installments yet? Have you done it? Have you made that decision? Uh, <clears throat> apparently I need a lot of therapy and I'm actually in the last maybe quarter of book nine because nine. I, I, I need a lot of therapy apparently when you say a lot of therapy you're talking about the fact that writing serves as like a sort of stress relief a valve yeah. of of, of yeah. expression so yes. so you you're saying you need a lot of therapy meaning that meaning that you've already written nine installments in the series well um, eight and i'm trying to finish up the ninth one, the characters are being stubborn, just sort of tapping their feet in the corner and laughing at me right now. Going, anytime now you can, you know, finish up the epilogue. Oh my goodness. But, so, yeah. so Karen, Mates of the Alliance is the first one. Yes. Um, are we able to know the name of the second one yet? So, or can people get excited about when will this be out? The second, the third, and the fourth? 
I'm hoping for springtime sometime, maybe late spring for the second one. It's going to be Darzik, who's the uh, Karen's best friend, and uh, about Emily, who's uh, Daria's best friend. Oh, and they they connect. The, they do it like a, a blind date situation. He, uh, it's it's interesting because the Luperans sort of, it's one of those almost like instant love because it's a uh, they follow their instincts and they don't have the, you know self-doubt that sometimes humans have and they recognize their their person their other right away and uh let's just say that uh karen had it easy and daria uh, also didn't give him too much trouble but uh, emily leads darzik on a really really interesting ride so and the luperans are the 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 breed or not breed what do you call it the civilization <laughs> the alien civilization that's wolf-like but with human a human sort of heart sentiment there that actually attracts a human doctor on this side very interesting i have a feeling you're going to do more with this than just right we're going to we may be seeing this uh, in you know a movie theater near you but you know i'm i just have big visions for for people and i oh. i think you're onto something here well i hope so because uh i think thankfully um that it has been turned into a screenplay I've been very lucky. I can't get over it. You must be some kind of prodigy. Did you know you were a writer? Um, I wrote really, uh, I was a very uh, introverted teenager. And I used to write a lot of uh, poetry. And that was all I did as a venting process. And I, I that fell by the wayside as I got older. And uh, let's just say that uh, progress notes and consult notes aren't exactly you know, something that's going to keep your attention. It's not exactly uh, mind blowing. So yeah, this, this was an incredible surprise. And it's funny because sometimes if I go back and reread something, I'm like, where did they, where did they come up with that idea? Because they went in a direction I never would have imagined. And it, and if I try to force something, because I I have this little plan of what I want to do, it is stilted and just awkward. And then it's like, okay, I'm going to delete that. Let's just, and then I just start typing and then it works. And it, it's because I let the characters kind of just do their thing. They and flow through you. Yeah. But it's kind of funny because I can almost see them laughing going, you, I told you so. And they're blowing raspberries at me. Yeah. Oh, that is absolutely terrific. Where can people find your book? It is on um, Amazon for Kindle and uh, Barnes and Noble for Nook. And it's also available in paperback on both. And I think it's going to be in a couple of actual brick and mortar uh, bookstores, but I'm not sure which ones yet. Congratulations. That is so exciting. Well, I'm telling you, this is a name you won't forget, everyone. Fionn, which is spelled F-I-O-N-N-E, Fionn Fox, F-O-X-X-E, Faraday, the last name, Fionn Fox Faraday. She wins the International Impact Book Award in Romance for a book that she wrote during the pandemic as she was a pulmonary doctor. The name of the book is Cairn, spelled K-A-I-R-N, Cairn, Mates of the Alliance. And she's working on volume number nine. Could be the most prolific and quickest writer in the world. Cannot wait to um, see all that happens with this. And you must come back on the show. I really appreciate you having me here. This has been a wonderful time and I've had a lot of fun. Thank you so much. 
Fionn, all the best to you and, and your wonderful muse of these characters and uh, taking us into a romantic romp through the galaxies. You're listening to The Way Home. I'll be right back. Welcome back. You're listening to The Way Home with Laura Smith. Here's Laura. Well, Genesis 2 Project announced worldwide its expansion of its investigations into unidentified aerial phenomenon, also known as UAP, and probably even more recognizable to those of us are of age as UFOs. I'm so excited to have these guests back on my program. Dr. J.C. Van Velkenberg, um, former Los Alamos National Lab biophysicist, and Deborah LaPravat, former FBI special agent and forensic scientist. So much research going on and a lot of it focusing in New Mexico this time. Welcome both of you to the program. Thank you. I, I find it so interesting. I went to uh, New Mexico to Santa Fe for the first time a year ago, and it was there's something so uh, beautifully mystical about that area of the world, and and everything from the sort of the ancient, the Indian, um, the history there, and then plus just the desert and everything. I can imagine it must be a hotbed of interest for people who are discovering and analyzing and and doing research on the, uh, I'll just say UAPs. Tell me what's going on there and why are you focusing on New Mexico? Well, it's really interesting. You know, uh, G2P started because one of our principals took a photograph over five years ago. uh, And in the photograph, there was a unidentified aerial phenomenon. We didn't know what it was. And uh, we started looking from there. And over the last five years, we've amassed a database of tens of thousands of photographs that have been taken in different areas in the northern New Mexico area. Uh, And uh, you know, we, we go through them all and address them scientifically. So which of these photographs can be explained? Oh, that's a drone. Oh, that's a military aircraft. Okay. Well, that's like, that's a handful of the photographs we have. There are tens of thousands of photographs uh, of images that have been taken as well as video that we don't know what they are. And they don't seem to match up either by uh, the physics that we know to exist at this time or any of the uh, technology that we have at this time. So we just uh, we started taking a deep dive into that data and we brought additional scientists on. We brought physicists, engineers and people that have digital imagery analysis backgrounds so that we can validate and independently collect additional data. So do you think there is more phenomena going on in New Mexico than maybe perhaps other places? And is it true that some of this was foreshadowed in some of the, is it called petroglyphs, some of the drawings on the cave walls in that area that even sort of signaled that this would be happening now? That's a very interesting question. And yes, this, this does appear to be just a hotspot region, you know, and there is, um, there is a modern day history with New Mexico that we've all heard about, you know, that New Mexico is equated with unexplained phenomena. And then you're right, there is a prehistoric recording here as well. One thing that we have found with everything happening here, we found petroglyphs 
that look almost identical to the things that we are capturing today. And that really serves to validate that these things have been going on here for a very long time and consistently. And that's it's interesting to think about because the things that are being captured here are being captured on a daily basis, every single night, every single day, every single season. And it's just, it's more validation that this is occurring, you know, and so really that was the paradigm shift of thinking of UAP from the fanciful of, do they exist? Is this out there to, yes, this is out there certainly, but what is it? And that's why we're taking this scientific approach now to look at these things that are there that are just unexplained and trying to figure out what are they? And, you know, I'm so glad and grateful that that you are all doing this because, I mean, it just seems like forever that it's been sort of in this um, sci-fi space of, you know, kind of woo-woo and out there and just sort of more for entertainment purposes, it seems like. I mean, I'm sure it's not. It's been more uh, taken more seriously than that. But it, it feels like now you're really trying to get um, to the scientific uh, basis of it all so that it can be taken seriously. And some of the means of doing this, some of this forensic um, technology. Uh, how is that playing into it? Well, I think it's really important that we validate in this world. You know, we all watch CGI in movies nowadays. So we know that digital images can be manipulated. And so the very first thing that we did is we took the f- photographs that we were taking and we turned over our devices to a company called Primo Forensics. They're a company that's na- internationally recognized as doing the photographs that are in entered as evidence in courtrooms. And we said, we want you to validate these photographs, you know, so they go from the device that was taken on the time of day, the type of device, and they not only eliminate things like, oh, well, this was something on your camera lens, or this was an aspect of the photograph, or this was a light flare. No, we know that by the time we release a photograph on our website, it's been uh, had a digital analysis that also confirms it's never been enhanced, altered, or in any way digitally manipulated. So what you're seeing is exactly what was photographed with our devices. That's great. And, and have they, I know that they were submitted by a wide variety of citizens, um, very disparate in terms of, you know, where they came from. Um, does that lend more credibility to the topic that you maybe have like somebody in the military and then maybe someone who's picking chilies on a farm, you know, sort of identifying these um, these strange phenomena? Certainly. And one of the first challenges that we recognized in making this a bona fide, serious scientific discipline was that a lot of people, because this this field has been so mired in entertainment and science fiction for so long, that people really didn't want to speak out as to their own experiences, even their own documentation or their interest in studying this because of that, because they were worried about their professional reputations, even their personal reputations. They just didn't want to speak to anyone about it. And so what we did was we thought, you know, if we go in and we really focus on the integrity of the data itself and the scientific study, the approach that we're taking, that we'll be able to dispel that. So what we did is we set up a a structure where everyone that collaborates with the Genesis 2 project has to sign a very strict non-disclosure agreement that we protect their confidentiality so that the scientific study will be focused on the data 
that they're bringing forth, whether that's their experiential data or their actual image captures from their devices so that they know that the information that we're studying and that we're presenting to the public is strictly based on data and findings and that they're, that they aren't a part of the, the story, so to speak. And that really allowed people to open up and to come forward and say, I'm a scientist. I have these experiences and I have wanted to study this and now I can. And, um, and so that has really strengthened our, our establishing this as a very serious scientific discipline. Oh, it's so interesting. And have they, have you found that a lot of these, um, examples that are being sent in, are they similar one to the other or are they all different or is it sort of a mixed bag? Well, again, um, a, a lot of the data that we're collecting, we collect, uh, from other scientists so that we know, so, you know, we know that they have, because we have to send the device to have them digitally analyzed. So, uh, when people, when people just send us photographs, we don't have the ability to know what device they took it on. Um, but what we do find is that in the data that we collect and other scientists that we brought on, we have a hundred different shapes, sizes uh, from uh, light orbs that appear to be moving around that come together, that join apart, become one and then become many to just something that looks like an aircraft. I mean, in that it's in the air, but it matches nothing that we know about or it changes shape while it's flying. Um, I mean, it's just really phenomenal uh, empirical data. Mm-hmm. And um, I think one of the biggest things that, you know, lends credence is that if you were testing a prototype, you might test two or three prototypes. Would you test a hundred prototypes? Probably not. And, and but yet we can identify more than a hundred different shapes, body, you know, uh, aircraft or craft um, shapes, sizes, things that move so quickly that you won't see them. You only see them when you slow down the video. Things that seem to tumble through the air, which of course denies flight as we know it. Um, and so it's just really, we're fascinated with the data we're collecting. Oh, you must, this is, must be dream come true, um, for scientists like yourselves to, to really be sinking your teeth into this and to be part of what is going to be historical, I think, you know, in terms of its findings and, and, and opening up a whole new, well, world proverbially, uh, in, in the sense that now it's being studied scientifically and more than just, you know, kind of unexplainable, uh, type of information that, that often has been hidden from the regular public, um, for whatever reason, um, it's been, held under wraps. And so it's exciting to me that this is really happening on this level of scientific uh, research so that hopefully, eventually, we'll all be able to be privy um, to some of this because it's just so beyond fascinating. And I I think it's going to, you know, actually bring us together, perhaps more than anything else. I'm so grateful to have you along. What would be a great website for people who are just so interested in not only the project uh, the G2P project that, that you're part of, but also the Primo Forensics to find out more about that. Wonderful. So we do have a website and we update it very occasionally because we are very careful with the data that we release. And that is www.genesis, the number two project.com. And you can also find all the credentials and the interesting aspects of Primo Forensics at www.pri.com 
M-E-A-U, Primo Forensics.com, all one word. And they, they have some very interesting aspects of the technical aspects of how they look at these images. Yes, I jumped down there for a minute and it looks absolutely fa- fascinating. Genesis 2 project.com and then primoforensics.com. Lady, thank you so very much. Dr. JC Van Falkenberg, former Los Alamos National Lab biophysicist and Deborah Lapravat, former FBI special agent and forensic scientist. You're doing a great thing for humankind. We thank you. Thank, thank you. you so much. You're listening to The Way Home with Laura Smith. Once again, here's Laura. My guest is Samantha Crow. She's the manager of science education for people for the ethical treatment of animals, also known as PETA, and for a really incredible topic. I remember growing up and having to dissect frogs in class, in science class, and absolutely abhorring it and, and not wanting to be there. But I think there are people that are in my camp as well, many of them, in fact, so much so that there are new ways to discover science and do dissections, but digitally now, so that all these millions of animals don't have to be hurt. Thank you so much for letting us know all about the new, the new methods for uh, dissection for science, Samantha. Thank you so much for having me. Yes, please tell us about the new methodology. I It's so unreal to me that there are so millions of real animals still going into classrooms for dissection when indeed they don't even use them to become medical doctors anymore. It is very shocking. Um, You know, so non-animal methods include interactive digital dissection software programs, which are aligned with the science standards. Um, Also dissectable synthetic models like SynFrog, which is a synthetic frog, um, simulated experiments and much, much more. Studies actually show that students who use humane dissection, you know, non-animal methods, outperform their peers who dissected animals. It makes so much sense. And this is what where the generation is anyway. They're all online. They're all on digital platforms. And I can't imagine that they would still do something so inhumane as that. But I'm so happy to hear. When are we going to see an end to the practice of using real animals in science dissection and be fully digital? Well, I'll tell you, I will be the happiest unemployed person on the planet. <laughs> I'm joking, of course, but, you know, I, I, that is exactly our goal. You know, our goal is to open the eyes of educators, you know, talk to administration, support parents and students, you know, on, on their journey to, you know, having, you know, their, like opting out of animal dissection, you know, helping teachers, uh, you know, learn about all the methods that are available, like the ones I just mentioned, the software and synthetic, you know, frog, dissectable frog models and, you know, things like that, just, you know, sort of sharing all of this information with them. And that is what we're here to do. We're here to support students and parents, support teachers, and also, you know, work with administration. Samantha Crow, we're so grateful for all the work that you and PETA does to make the world a more humane place. Thank you for joining me on the way home. Welcome back. You're listening to The Way Home with Laura Smith. Here's Laura. Well, it's been a fun show today and otherworldly, so to speak, but I'm really super grateful because it's also the anniversary of the show. Three years ago this week on 11-11, which 
it means all sorts of things. First of all, and most importantly, Veterans Day. And we give our thanks to everyone who has ever served in any situation, any foreign situation, domestic situation, people who step up and give the ultimate sacrifice or just put themselves in a position where they can do all they can to protect our freedoms here in this country. So we are so grateful, so grateful. And uh, we'll have a veteran on the show in the coming weeks, for sure, because that to me is truly those are the, the people that we have to honor at the highest. And so I am grateful for that, but I'm also just grateful that it's the anniversary of our show on 1111 and the way home. I don't know how I was inspired with that name, but after doing it for a year, I actually did move home after 41 years to the Midwest to be closer to my family during COVID. And um, so it became very apropos and somewhat ironic that I named the show the way home, but it just feels good and it feels right. And I feel like I'm home when I'm speaking to all these interesting, fascinating people, wonderful people, and uh, on a daily basis or a weekly basis when I get the show produced. And that's all thanks to my wonderful producer, Bob Small, who uh, actually taught me radio 26 years ago this week also. So it's not only the anniversary of the program, it's the anniversary of me walking into my very first radio station in Greenwich, Connecticut. Um, it, It was 26 years ago. I remember it was a week before Thanksgiving or two weeks before Thanksgiving. And this man named Bob Small was there and he was given, oh, the unfortunate task of having this bright eyed woman who wanted to make it in radio to teach her everything there was that he knew. And boy, I am sorry about everything I put you through 26 years ago, Bob. I don't know. I thought it was a wonderful experience in most cases. Yeah. You taught me every single thing there was to know. I did. I was the production director, so I made all the commercials. Right. You taught me you how had to, to be, write them too. I had to write them. I was yeah. the copywriter, and yeah. then I had to produce them. And we used to uh, edit on this reel-to-reel tape with a with a grease pen oh, yeah. and a, a, a what do you call it? A razor blade. Mm-hmm. We, that's how we would edit, and then we would tape together after we cut out the pieces we didn't want. And I got so good at it, but it was because you taught me. You were such a wonderful teacher, and I'm sure I drove you nuts, but I thank you for that because you truly changed my life. It's nice to have that experience, though. I mean, just the the tape editing thing. Nobody knows anything about that anymore. Oh, can can you imagine telling kids about that? I mean, my my daughter edits on computer programming because she does music and voiceovers, and she does all her own editing. But she, I mean, she is so fast, too, but she does it on a laptop. Mm -hmm. She has big, huge jobs, worldwide, you know, commercials and stuff, and she does all her editing on a laptop. Right. And it's just so amazing. And you're right. Here we were with these big reel-to-reels. So that was fun and interesting. And not only that, but I had to learn how to go on the air. I was a disc jockey. We had a smooth jazz format. Do you remember that? Vaguely. I guess that was <laughs> That's just, how long ago. Yeah, that was before we really did all talk. Yeah. Before you were all talk, yeah. you were uh, smooth jazz with me. So we did that, and it was just an amazing experience. I was there for three years at WGCH in Greenwich, Connecticut. And so the way home, I decided to produce 22 years later. You are still there, and you are now producing the show called The Way Home, and I came back home full circle. It, it just, it's all too mind-boggling, but it's, it's heartwarming, makes me very happy. You haven't changed an iota. I'd like to know your secret, Benjamin Button, <laughs> how you've stayed so young all these know. years. I see the differences myself. I don't know. 
Well, you know, radio does that. I, I think it keeps you young. It's one of those types of careers where you just you feel like a kid in a candy shop and mm-hmm. you just never grow old. But so that's it. And also Jim Cleefield, who is my we call him a VOG in the business, which is voice of God, but it's not blasphemous. It's just it's what they say in voiceovers. When you hear somebody on the Oscars or the Academy Awards or the or the Grammys or something, and there's the person who's doing the announcing, Randy Thomas uh, comes to mind. She's my friend on Facebook and she's been doing she did the Oscars for 100 years, basically. And here's Jim Cleefield. He sits here. He does it for us on the show. He's the one that says, welcome back. You're listening to The Way Home. Right, Jimmy? That's right. The one and only. <laughs> you and I worked together uh, back at, in the year 2000 at WFAS in Westchester, New York. And that's so you and I have known each other for an awfully long time. Now 20 so years plus, years. right? Yeah. Yeah, 22 years. So it's just wonderful you are such an amazing voice and an amazing human being Aww. and so and i when i put you on the task as being my good news guru boy you have just done such a great job with that i i think people really enjoy in fact my partner here in in the midwest on the air john zimney he said that guy he's got a great voice and he you know does all those heartwarming stories at the end of your program so that means a lot i think to thank our you listeners. jay-z yeah thank you well I am so grateful to both of you. I'm grateful to my wonderful audience who listens and enjoys the programs. I have such a gamut of of different people on the show every week. I mean, you can't you can't make it up. The you know the, between the authors and the teachers and the comedians and the movie stars and it's just so wonderful to talk to every different type of person. I feel so blessed and so lucky to do it. But this is the point in the show every week where we get some good news stories in because Jimmy has gone out there and he has uh, found ones that will warm your heart. So for that, Jimmy Dean, what do you have? Well, it's harvest season, uh, not only uh, where you are in the Midwest, but I'm sure all over the country. Farming is a very difficult job. I mean, they're out from sunrise to sunset, I mean, harvesting crops. And But I want to tell you the story about a particular farmer who uh, really uh, uh, is very fortunate that he has just a loving community around him. Uh, he was driving on a local street one day in Frost, Minnesota. His name is 50-year-old Scott LeGreed, and uh, he was driving on the road, and luckily he saved a puppy's life. He was swerving around, just did save that puppy's life. He wasn't as fortunate, though. She, he crashed into a nearby area of the road, and fortunately he suffered a lot of major injuries, broken bones, he had a concussion. I mean, he was in really bad shape. And again, this is the height of the harvest season now, and usually harvest soybeans and corn. And basically the doctor said he's going to need at least several months to recover. Well, not to worry. Because Frost, Minnesota is such a small town, it's one of those where everybody knows everybody else. Well, when they got the news, the entire community did. They all banded together about a dozen farmers from Frost and surrounding communities, wanted to make sure that that harvest continues and the crops don't die. They wanted to preserve everything. So they brought all of the equipment right into the area of the farm and made sure, like, everything was mowed with the lawn. And they just they wanted to just help this guy because he really gave so much to them for so many years, this guy, Scott. And, um, and as I said, they... They got the job done, and he's just really, really grateful to them, the fact that you know the harvest season has been saved. So he couldn't do the job. He needs time to recover, and they say, let's go help this guy. It's just a great way. We talk about kindness on this show a lot, and I think, you know, as I said, for what this farmer did, for them to give back in such a small town, it's just a wonderful gesture, and I'm sure he's very happy that he'll be back on the job before you know it. He'll be back on his tractor starting all over again. But, yeah, turning something you know, like making lemonade out of lemons, that's exactly what happened for him. 
That's a beautiful thing. And, you know, that's the the true epitome of what it means to be a neighbor, a real neighbor. And I wonder if they found the puppy. I wish that was part of the story. Well, the did puppy did survive. It? I wish I could say who the puppy was, but uh, the puppy yes. was saved. Uh, but he certainly sacrificed a lot to save the puppy's life. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it is that does happen. It was interesting because now I'm in the Midwest and I we did. I was doing the morning show. I do the morning shows uh, Monday through Friday on um here on 95.3 MNC. And uh, one of the reports just said, well, you know, it's harvest time and we want you to take extra care to make sure that you know that there's going to be big, large tractors and equipment on the streets and the highways. So just be on the alert for that. And I thought, wow, I'm not in New York anymore, for sure. Um, Or at least not New York City, because upstate New York, there's a lot of farming that goes on there. But I just thought that was so it just just really, I don't know, warmed my heart to say, be careful. There's tractors out there for the harvest, um, and they're using the roads, too. you got to beware. So anyway, it's just wonderful. Thank you so much for that, Jim. And uh, Bob, thank you again for teaching me how to be on the radio 26 years ago and for still being my producer. You're a glutton for punishment. <laughs> yeah, yeah, really. The producer, the professor, he's everything. He certainly is. And for all of you listening, thank you so much for your continued support, for tuning in, and for all the fun we have each week here on The Way Home. I'm Laura Smith. Have a great, great week.